My name is Trip Foreman, and in this episode of SMEA VC, I sat down with Monique Scruzny, CEO and founding partner of Inspire Group, an investor relations strategy firm with offices in New York, San Francisco, and Sao Paulo that enables private and public companies to build and strengthen their capital raising strategies. She's also an executive board director at the University of Pennsylvania's Ford School. Monique has previously held executive positions with responsibility for corporate finance and strategic communications, as well as investor relations at companies like AOL, Malia Americas, and Skyline America. In this episode, we discussed Monique's incredible stories and lessons from her deep experience in Latin America, what every founder should know about investor relations, what role Wharton plays in Latin America, and how Latin American technology has changed in the past few decades since Monique has been working in the region. We discussed all this and more in this episode of Samia VC. Okay, Monique, can you start by telling the audience a bit more about your work history up to and including your current role at Inspire Group? Sure. Hey, Tripp. Thanks for having me on your podcast um, and fellow San Franciscan shout out. Um, so I, my career started in, and I've always been involved in Latin America with my career and I, really the interest, I'll start with that is because most people ask me, you know, you're American, born in San Francisco, what do you, why, what are you doing with Latin America? And, you know, it all really started quite a long time ago at 13, I was, I spent a summer in Guatemala and it was a uh, summer after a, an enormous earthquake, which caused a lot of devastation and it was really jarring for me it was the first time you know city kid going down to a market where I had exposure to just this vast pyramid of people so that that was sort of started my interest um learned Spanish took Portuguese got out of college and had a amazing opportunity to work for the IFC which is part of the World Bank um at the IFC, I was one of their first analysts. They didn't even have an official analyst program. I was there. The other analyst was um, a Nicaraguan who um, the two of us were working in the Latin American region. We were posted to the Latin region. And here we were two, you know, two uh, people out of college with this opportunity to work on huge infrastructure projects that the IFC and World Bank work on in the region. So, um, I had spent two years work traveling, and at that time, Venezuela was not what it is today. Uh, Colombia and the Caribbean, that was the region that I spent time in. Um, then wanted to pursue my, you know, knew that I wanted to pursue higher education, so I went to Wharton. Um, after Wharton, I came out and I um, wanted an experience in investment banking um, at the time, investment banking and consulting were sort of the two places where most of us went, much different um, career opportunities and desires today. Um, but at that time, I went to a boutique investment bank called Wolfenson, where I was doing M&A. And what I specifically wanted to do was domestic M&A, because I thought learning, you know, M&A in US and Europe and developed markets would really hone my skills. The reality is I found out because I was then moved into a Latin American group when a really one of the iconic investment bankers, Vila McCausland, joined Wolfenson. And they looked around the firm and they said, who speaks Spanish? <laughs> so, I do. And I got put on her team. Um, and so I ended up doing, I was a, 
M&A in Latin America. And what I really learned at that moment was that M&A and any sort of business in Latin America is much more complex. There's so many more issues to deal with than what was what I realized plain vanilla U.S. deals. So um, from there, I went on to work, uh, had an opportunity to go into the media. I wanted, was thinking I wanted to get out of banking and go in-house. I joined Fox Television um, and I was uh, part of the uh, strategy group and business development group for the international team, was put on a really cool project, which was the direct-to-home satellite system rollout for Latin America called Sky Latin America. So I became the head of business development for Sky, um, stayed with it. It was really exciting because, you know, I got to meet Emilio Escarga Sr., uh, the Mourinho family. We did deals with them in Mexico, Brazil, most of the major countries. Um, it was a really heady time of just rolling out businesses around Latin America. Um, also sort of trailblazing in the sense that it was the first satellite uh, multi-channel television system for LATAM. Um, at one point I was then a little bit tired of traveling because I did a lot of travel at that time. And when we got to the sort of, we rolled out the business in the major markets, was time to start thinking about Central America and some of the smaller markets. I said, I'm out. So I left and I had an opportunity to join a business school friend. And this is uh, somebody that I had done my senior project on taking his family company public. That was our, our advanced study project we did together. He then left and actually did it. And this is the Melia Hotel chain, which is a Spanish hotel chain. Um, and my friend uh, then asked me if I would join their company and help them take another company public. So I did that. Um, I joined as the CFO and COO of the hotel real estate group for Latin America. We took, we spun that out. We took that company public actually on the Spanish Stock Exchange. So that was really my first foray into investor relations and understanding what that meant and the responsibilities around that. Um, I, you know, we, that business, um, after being there for a while, I, I stepped back and then I, it was a time where we saw the very first, and this was the late 90s, um, Internet bubble was starting in the U.S., the first big one. Um, Latin America was get, was really exciting um, moments. You had companies like Patagon, uh, one of the very first financial services, pan-regional platforms being um, developed. Um, you had the beginnings of uh, Mercado Libre, some of the greats being um, founded at that time. And so I joined this group, this group from all over LATAM in Miami and started uh, a company called Conectadas, which was a little before its time. Um, it was a content uh, advertising model with a female vertical for Latin America. Um, we raised a pre-seed friends and family and pre-seed round. Um, lesson I learned around that, which was um, I had a terrific lawyer that said, don't take any money from anyone that's not a qualified investor. So that was a really important lesson and one that I, I talked to sort of startup founders that today. I still, uh, I still talk about why that's so important. 
Um, we wound down the business. We ended up selling our assets. So it was one of my, you know, I'd love to say it was a huge success. Um, we were able to return some of the capital, which, you know, in, in the scheme of things um, was the success. We sold uh, the site to the Cisneros Group. Um, and, you know, I think it was a success because the Cisneros Group then invited me to join a very large startup they had, which was AOL for Latin America. And they were starting this business um, along with AOL. This was pre-Time Warner, pre-potential merger with Time Warner. AOL was had wildly successful in terms of, you know, what is ubiquitous today, internet US and, and globally. And the Cisneros Group joined, uh, partnered to bring that concept to Latin America. They'd taken the company public. Um, it was, the window was closing at that moment. Um, the IPO wasn't as successful as everyone had hoped. And they asked me to come on board and help them rebuild their investor base. So that's what I did. Um, spent about five years working with AOL, took on multiple responsibilities there. Um, and then from AOL, I, gosh, I then started my own consulting firm. So um, about 15 years now working in investor relations consulting. That's my long background. I love it. Could you tell us more about Inspire Group, what problem it solves and who your ideal client is? Sure. So, you know, Inspire, what we're doing is investor relations. We have sort of two, we're, we're well known for the work we do with pre-public and publicly listed companies. So Inspire is, we're, we have headquartered in New York and Sao Paulo. We have uh, colleagues in Buenos Aires, in uh, Uruguay, and in San Francisco. And what we do is we really help companies. Um, you know, I have this, my mother had this saying is that for every pot, there's a lid. And we, you know, we truly believe that for every financial story, every company, there's an appropriate investor. And so our goal is really to help our clients um, take their narrative position, what is their current reality, as well as help articulate what their potential is to attract the most appropriate investors to their story. And so we've been doing that for a long time with uh, companies that are you know, a year into the journey of becoming public, companies that are public already, and about a year ago, we started also working with early stage companies using many of the tools that we have today. One is, you know, building a narrative, um, helping our, our teams articulate that narrative, and also helping our, our clients understand, you know, put together what is their what's the appropriate investor group for them? So we do that both for public companies as well as now for earlier stage. On the early stage side, we focus on uh, primarily later seed and A round, sort of the first priced round. Most of the clients that we work with on this side are companies that have, um, have either been prior entrepreneurs, but haven't been in front of the fundraising process, or they are, um, or they have businesses which they're bringing into the tech world, and both of those, the sort of what I would say that what makes them similar is that they haven't gone through what is the traditional what you might think of as the Y com combinator, the um, endeavor, um, the uh, latitude type processes of really building those 
networks of, of uh, ecosystems that thrive today for some of the earlier and, and in some cases younger um, entrepreneurs. So our entrepreneurs tend to be folks that have been, um, let's say, around the block a few times. I love it. I love it. Could you share with me and the audience a story about something that you've learned from a client interaction in Latin America? Oh boy. <laughs> um, you know, I, um, I would say that what I have learned is that Latin Americans can be incredibly agile. Uh, you know, it's in the DNA. And I think that if you are, if you've grown up or you've had parents or grandparents that have grown up in environments where you know, the inflation where you're running to the store to to buy something because tomorrow it's going to reprice the inflation rates that many Brazilians, Argentines have faced, for instance, for so long, um, the agility that and and really um, resilience that so many Latin Americans face and sort of political turmoil, all of it, just things that growing up in the U.S. we don't normally face. We've seen some of it. And I think this is the first time that, you know, current generation has seen inflation and interest rates the way we're seeing today in the U.S., but for Latin Americans, this is like, this is daily. This is happening all the time. So with that background, I guess, you know, I had an interesting, um, I had a client in, in Latin America, one of my very first Brazilian clients, a big real estate company called Gafisa, which has been through many, many iterations since I first met them. When I first met them, um, private equity firm called GP had uh, invested and took them public in Brazil. Then another private equity firm in the U.S. called uh, Equity International, which is headed up by Sam Zell, joined, uh, was an investor, and they had planned to take the company public in the U.S. I was brought in by the Equity International folks to help this management team prepare for their U.S. IPO. Um, flash forward a few years, and this was the very first company in Brazil to be called what Brazilians say, pulverizado, and that means a corporate, a corporation that didn't have a controlling shareholder, right? So today we have more in LATAM, not a lot more. We will have many, many more as, you know, unicorns start going public and we don't have these family controlled businesses anymore, but this was one of the first. Um, and so it was also the first company to face activism in LATAM, like serious activism, public, let's call it public activism. Of course, companies face activism with their investors. Usually it's dealt with privately, but this one played out on the cover of Valor in, uh, in Brazil. And my client didn't see it coming. They didn't see it coming because the playbook really hadn't been written in Brazil yet. Um, so we saw it coming. We saw a uh, we saw how these activists were beginning to use the media. And on Christmas Eve, I called my client and said, "You realize because this article had come out like, December twenty third. I said, "You realize what's happening here?" And he said, "No, we're you know we're going on vacation. We'll deal with it when we come back." I said, "No, I'm getting on a plane tonight, Christmas Eve." I'm giving up my Christmas. I'm coming down because this is coming at you. You will lose your job if you don't take this seriously and your board will lose their seats. 
So I went down there within a week, um, you know, the entire team had canceled their plans. We got together, we talked about what we could do. We realized that we didn't have the, in Brazil at the time, we didn't have the advisory capacity to deal with, um, to deal with activist investors. So my client asked me to come down. So I went home, packed my bags, my Family came with me, thankfully. My husband was an entrepreneur and could also be very uh, flexible. I had a young son who was in nursery school at the time. And the three of us packed up and moved to Brazil for three months while I managed this activist campaign, this sort of counter campaign for the company. So, you know, what have I, what did I learn out of that experience is really agility, um, the ability for this management team to listen. Um, and to really take action quickly. So, you know, fast forward, um, the company with the management team retained their position. They did, they lost a couple board seats, not control of the board. So it was a successful outcome for the company. But that was, yeah, that was interesting. What a story. What a story. I want to shift back and talk more about Inspire Group. Could you tell the audience more about the team and their backgrounds? Sure. So, you know, we have a, it's a, a boutique um, consultancy firm. And when you think about investor relations, there's two ways of thinking about it. One is the front end and one is the back end. And the back end I think about as requirements, the regulatory requirements, the requirement to have a website, the requirement to hold a conference call, um, the requirement to do filings. All of these are things that have to be done. And there are lots of terrific providers out there that help facilitate that. The front end of investor relations uh, is really about that second word, which is relationships, right? And that is, you know, how does the management team impart uh, confidence with, his, with its investors? And so part of that is being, is transparency. Part of it is being available. Part of it is being quick to responding to your investors. Um, and so we have built a team that is heavily focused on that front part, on helping our clients articulate their stories, helping them put in place the appropriate relationships so that they continue to have um, a, a ongoing dialogue with investors. Um, so the kind of team that we have tends to be quite senior. So we have client relationships that run from recent IPOs. Um, we worked on the Newbank IPO, which was which was now ooh, almost coming up on a year. We started working with them about a year before their IPO, helping the team, the IR team structure, working alongside the bankers. Um, we still work with them today to a company in Mexico, Azure, which um, manages and controls airports, where some of my partners, a partner of mine has been working with them for almost a little over 25 years. So the relationships span. The team that we have is a senior team because it's a team that has to work hand in hand with senior management. We are, um, you know, yesterday I was on the phone preparing for an ESG roadshow for one of our clients, the chairman of the board, the CEO, the IRO, we're all going, are all going on this roadshow to talk to investors about their ESG and sustain, sustainability commitments. 
So the team members that you put in front of these people have to be fairly senior, have to have a lot of experience. And that's pretty much how we're mainly built. It's a pretty, it's very consultative approach. Of course, we also work on invest, uh, investor day events and we have team members that work on all of the event organization as well. So that's kind of how they're, they're built. And they're all people that are financially fluent. Thank you for that background. I want to I want to hear more about your macro thoughts about Latin America and specifically how has Latin America changed since you started working in the region? And I know that's such a broad answer, but I'd love to hear any thoughts you can pull from that. Uh, sure. You know, Trip, when I started working in Latin America, uh, most of the clients or the interactions and that I and the company, the partnerships that as I mentioned, the Escarga family, I mentioned the Mourinho family, who today continue to be um, quite involved, as you may know, Escarga, uh, the son is now um, at Televisa, Mourinho is still involved in, in Hedge Global in Brazil. That was commonplace. You know, when I started working in Latin America, it was very common to be meeting with family members who were running very, very large businesses. And, um, you know, the concept of a David Velez, a Colombian coming to Brazil, disrupting, you know, an entrenched industry um, that had been dominated by a handful of banks that had been there for many, many years. And David, with his partners, were able to, you know, in eight years, build a financial platform that is now amongst the probably, you know, top five in the region in terms of clients and one of the largest in the world. To do that in eight years, a foreigner coming to another country was unthinkable when I first started working in Latin America. Um, I'd say the other big thing is I see so many more women in senior roles. I, you know, when I, and that's, and that's something that's very important to me. I spend a lot of time working and trying to promote um, women in leadership. When I first started working in Latin America, interestingly, the country that had the most women that I would encounter was Venezuela. And that was because Venezuela had been a very wealthy country. They sent their children abroad to learn. Um, women felt came home and they were independent, much more independent, and they could take on more senior roles. So um, uh, rarely would I see a woman in leadership. Today, I see I have I have several clients that where women are CFOs. Very few of my clients have women CEOs, so we still have a ways to go. But there's been a lot of traction on that front. I love that. Since we started emailing, you've traveled from San Francisco to New York and spent some time in Sao Paulo. Can you tell us more about the travel associated with your current role at Inspire Group? Well, you know, thankfully, unfortunately, the pandemic has, there's a lot of unfortunate things about it. The, the good thing about it is that it's allowed us to do what we're doing today, which is conduct business, have a conversation, you know, virtually. But, uh, you know, relationships are really important. And so tra my travel is there is one is team oriented and ensuring that, you know, we retain a, a really important and strong culture. So it's important for me to spend time with my teams in the region. 
Um, it's important for me to spend time with current clients, potential clients. Um, you build relationships ultimately on a one-to-one -on -one basis. So that's a lot of my travel. Um, my recent travel to New York, I was at the LAVCA conference. I was at the Brazil Foundation dinner. I was at the BTG conference, and I was also uh, with my team. So a lot of things are happening. Um, I think about three weeks ago, uh, New York, this you couldn't walk down the street of Madison or Fifth Avenue without bumping into a Latin American because everybody seemed to be there. Yeah. I love that. I want to shift gears to some of the things that you would say to founders, especially in the realm of investor relations. What is something every founder should know about conducting investor relations? Well, I think that it's... Um, you know, first of all, I think it's important for founders to understand um, that it that you need to maintain relationships with your investors in good times and bad. I mean, it is human nature to sort of to retrench and to not want to talk to your investors when when things aren't going your way. The reality is, is if you've done a good job in the beginning and sort of chosen the right partners, the right investors, whether you're a private company and you're looking at your first priced rounds or your even your angel or seed investors, you're choosing investors that have a commitment to your business, to your field, to your area. And they understand that there are going to be good times and bads. They understand that. When you're looking at publicly traded companies, you also have a gamut of investors. Um, long investors tend to, you know, they invest in people. Um, they invest in management teams, despite what's going on, the noise that's going on, um, you know, day by day or quarter by quarter. So the number one thing that I always counsel is to maintain an open communication line. Um, I also think that it's it's a really important thing to welcome investors that are looking to, for strong governance. Um, governance uh, is is good for companies. Yeah, it really is. Um, and having investors, especially institutional investors involved in, in your company is also going to bring a level of discipline that ultimately will help the company to be sustainable. So those are things that I, you know, I think about when I'm talking. And I, I think I look at working with our startup investors from the lens of the end of the journey, right? And it's not even the end of it. An IPO is not the end of the journey. That's what I always say is an IPO is a major milestone, but it is the beginning of a relationship with the capital markets. So um, I look at it from that perspective, having dealt with companies that have done IPOs, that have gone beyond IPOs, that have had to re, redo their stories, turn around, rebuild investor relationships, and bring that experience to you know earlier stage founders. And it's very similar tools in that toolbox. Mm -hmm. Speaking about building the toolbox, you mentioned in your intro answer that you got your MBA from Wharton. Could you tell us more about your experience and current relationship with Wharton, as well as your perspective on Wharton's role in Latin America. Sure. Um, so I'm very grateful to Wharton and the opportunities that really opened up for me. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> red and blue. I went to UPenn undergrad. I did my Wharton grad um, experience there. It, it gave me an opportunity to really 
um, pursue my passion at the time, which again was looking and dealing with the region. I have a lot of friends today. I maintain those relationships from my Wharton days. Um, I am I'm on the executive board for Latin America, so I also have the opportunity to be in a stewardship role around you know, how Wharton thinks about Latin America. Um, we have been personally, um, I've been very involved and very interested in um, bringing more women from Latin America into the MBA program. Um, you know, I have always been involved in entrepreneurship and female entrepreneurship in our conversation before this. I mentioned to you that I'd been on a microfinance, uh, the board for a microfinance organization called Promo here for about seven years. And microfinance is primarily um, women that are involved, very small business women. So for me, there's this this sort of line of interest that goes from very small business women at sort of the lowest end of you know the smallest of businesses that you can imagine to helping um, usher in women through MBA to help them get to as I mentioned before not enough CEO positions um, to try to to try to get them there um, and so I work on that. Um, uh, Wharton itself, again, I go to this women theme. I'm so energized because you know, Penn has a, a president, a female president. Wharton has a female dean. Um, our Latin American executive board has a female chairwoman. So I am, you know, it's, it's exciting to see all that happening. And, you know, Wharton is committed to the region. There's huge club in Brazil in particular, in Mexico, we have alumni all over the region. And, you know, we've been active at trying to raise money to help with scholarships to provide for more equal opportunity to higher education. That's uh, basically my involvement there. There we go. So finally, I have to ask Peter Thiel's famous contrarian question, but with a uniquely Samia VC twist. What important truth about Latin America do very few people agree with you on? It's funny. Um, I think I would change this, not just Latin America, but the emerging markets. Um, I think from the lens of a, a developed country, and I'll just take the lens of the U.S., um, emerging markets are um, perhaps considered second-class citizens. You know, the experience is not as... Um, I, and I took this from my own experience, which was, you know, doing business development. And then at one point I tried to get a job um, in U.S. domestic business development, and I kept getting steered to Latin America. And, and part of the commentary was, well, you just don't have enough experience for the U.S. market. And so the reality is, is that you live a lifetime of opportunities and experiences in Latin America and any emerging market. It is much more difficult, much more sophisticated to be dealing with currency devaluation, inflation, ge you know, geopolitical turmoil, and trying to get a deal done than a U.S. domestic deal where we had, you know, what three percent inflation rate for so long. We have one currency, you know, it's a little plain vanilla. <laughs> so I think that's my truth, which is I think those that have gone through the emerging markets LATAM experience um, really have lived a lifetime in a very short period of time. Monique, what a great answer! Thank you so much for coming on the Simi VC podcast today. I very much appreciate your time. 
Great trip. Thanks a lot and great podcast. Thank you for watching this episode of Sunny VC. My name is Trip Gorman. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you view the podcast. And don't forget to check out our newsletter, DealFlow LA, which can be found by going to dealflow.la.